Welcome to the Project In Between podcast, an open and safe place where we are sharing stories of healing from emotional and stressful events. After any form of emotional trauma, there is an in-between phase, a healing phase. The in-between phase, this is where uncertainty meets growth and renewal. We all heal from these situations at different rates. What matters is the stories we resonate with, the lessons we have gained, and the experience that has made us a better person. So today, I would like to welcome on Daryl Elliott Green. Daryl is a senior, sorry, is a retired senior sergeant and now a professional speaker and a lifeline ambassador. He's also a part author of Resilience, Building a Powerful Mindset. And on the 1st of May 2000, Daryl's life changed forever. So welcome, Daryl, and thank you for coming on. It's an honour. Thank you, Kirsty. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, let's just, so I usually start the podcast off by um, getting a little bit of a background on you, like um, where you grew up, obviously what you did for a living and what drove you into that particular industry. And, yeah, just tell us a little bit more about yourself. I grew up here on the north side of uh, Brisbane. I went to Nanda Primary School and I had a uh, very happy childhood and joining the police, I realised just how lucky I was to have such a loving uh, family, uh, a mother, a father and an older brother. And when I finished high school I couldn't get into the university course that I was interested in which was economics and I'm, all, I'm a bit of an adventurer and I like keeping fit and I thought about joining the Australian Army and I thought well at this time it's 1990 uh, uh, and the Australian Army wasn't very uh, active and I thought I don't want to be spending my time dig digging ditches in the middle of uh, uh, outback Australia w what I want to do is I, I want to apply and one morning at the kitchen, my dear mum said, darling, why don't you join the police? And I thought, oh, what I learn, I get to apply and I can help people. Oh, that sounds really nice having your mum say, why don't you join the police? It just sounds, she sounds really lovely. <laughs> so how old were you when you joined the police force? I was um, 18, so I went straight from high school. Um, but... A further story, uh, just in relation to that, my uh, father, who's here today and is my number one supporter, he had a lot of wisdom and he knew a bit more about life than, than me. And so after I made the decision that I was going to apply for the police, on the family veranda one evening, he said to me, son, I don't mind you joining the police, but I'd rather you join the federal police rather than the state police, so you wouldn't have to go to those terrible domestics and risk being shot. Well, I wanted to stay in sunny Queensland, and so I ignored his advice, ended up joining the Queensland police. I was sworn in with 400 others, and I was the only one shot, and that was a great source of guilt uh, for me for many years. You were the only... Okay, so, yeah... Um... Obviously, this forms a part of your in-between um, story. So out of 400 people of your cadets, uh, you were the only one shot. Is that right? Yes. That's, the statistics on that is pretty slim. Like, Yeah, okay. So um, tell us a little bit about, um, yeah, what actually happened and um, about your healing phase and just everything in between. I'd love to hear it. Well, I was 27. I was awaiting promotion to a senior constable. It was a routine job and out of the darkness, uh, this crazed gunman appeared and he'd made threats to people on the streets and we were doing our background checks and he uh, shot me, my partner and the sergeant multiple times. And so I was uh, shot in the face uh, right here. The surgeon said two inches higher, you'd be dead. And he shot me in, in, in the arm. And 
after the, you know, we all survive, which we're very fortunate uh, to have done. But really for like the first month, I was just stunned and dazed. I just could not believe what I'd been through. It was like winning gold lotto, but on the other end of the spectrum. That's, it sounds, that sounds like horrific. I mean, I obviously, I was, you know, worked in the tertiary, a tertiary hospital here in, in Brisbane myself for many years. And um, I never once, I mean, I've seen some pretty horrific things too, but hearing your story, like just, I've never met anybody that that's ever happened to. So tell us a little bit about, yeah, I, I know your thought process, like everything through, through from, from go to woe. Well, initially, um, you know, after the event, uh, I immediately started having uh, psychological issues. So this is beside the massive amount of reconstructions that my mouth had to go through. There was so much uh, damage done in, in internally. So I, I started out ha having uh, dreams and uh, then there was anxiety, there was hyperarousal. My father had come in to wake me in the morning and I would, I would, kick out because I'd be in the middle of, of a dream. I'd see a police car. It would send sh uh, shivers down my spine. I was, uh, uh, psychologically, I was in a really dark place and fortunate that I had the safe surroundings of my uh, mum and dad. Mm. And I literally thought that I was going crazy. There was something wrong with me. I, I I actually thought I was just a lesser human being. But I was fortunate. My uh, father encouraged me to uh, seek uh, professional help. And I saw a very um, highly respected psychiatrist who had treated people who'd been through uh, similar experiences, particularly from the wars in the early 90s in Yugoslavia. And he said to me, and I remember that there's, there's certain words, and I'm sure, you know, in your, your career, there's certain words just uh, stick with you. And I remember this one, one sentence, he said, Daryl, unlike a soldier going in, into battle who has time to mentally prepare for the adrenaline to rush in, into their system, you had none of that. This person come out of the darkness and started blazing away. And he said, the only thing worse that could happen to you from a psychological perspective would be something akin to seeing your family executed in front of you. Yeah, 100%. And, mm. and that was uh, helpful to start me on that journey to, uh, and it took a long time and it, and it took even a, a counselling by a Vietnam veteran who was a police psychologist who tripped a booby trap and had his own story to really make it sink in that what was going on with me was just a normal human reaction to a very abnormal event. Yeah, 100%. Trauma, trauma, especially that kind of trauma, it, it has the ability to really deeply, deeply affect not only you, but also the people that are surrounding you. Like, you know, um, family members and all of that sort of stuff. Um, how did your how did your family take it all? Um, were they, uh, you know, traumatized? Did they have to seek their own help? At that time, there was no official uh, support uh, for the uh, family, and my father became deeply depressed. Not only about the shooting, but then about the procedures that I was going through when they were having to nurse me through all these uh, uh, horrific operations. And it got so bad for my dad, he became uh, depressed. And I mentioned this to the psychiatrist and this was being covered by work cover, my sessions with him, but he was a really good man. And he had a lot of experience. And, and so rather than let my dad fall through the cracks, he said, just bring your dad along. And I'd have a session with him. And then my dad would spend 15 minutes on his own with the psychiatrist. He ended up putting my dad on antidepressants and helped get my dad you know, through that hurdle and help him continue to support me. Yeah, right. I just want to apologise. If you hear any children screaming in the background, I live near a school. So <laughs> I apologise to everybody and you if you can hear it. Sorry about that. Um, so, well, that's great. 
I'm just wondering, um, so did your dad, so he got 15 minutes. Was that enough for him or did he go and seek extra external support for himself or? No, that seemed to be enough. And it was particularly the medication that was very helpful to, uh, to help manage the depression and also help manage his sleep. Yeah, right. Yeah, the sleep obviously is always affected. Um, tell us a little bit about how, when you were going through the surgeries, how many surgeries did you end up having to have? I had, I counted them up uh, many years ago and I had 17 major surgical procedures, which all required a general anaesthetic. So that is from initially going into the hospital where one operation to remove the bullet from my head, they left the bullet in my arm, you know, so they went in and got that out. And then I, I went through two reconstructions of my mouth and that required very uh, intrusive procedures because all this maxilla bone here was gone, the three teeth were gone, two teeth were here, were smashed. So for them to uh, put teeth implants in, there was uh, bone grafts, there was gun grafts, uh, it was ongoing. And so that's not even, you know, accounting for just the visits to like the you know, antidontist, you know, for, you know, capping teeth, etc. So the surgery was so painful that it was in fact a second trauma itself. Mm -hmm. And I realized this, how much it had affected me psychologically. The surgery was, I got asked to speak to police recruits in 2006. And a few years later, one of them said, oh, look, you know, if you had a few photographs of, of the, the incident, that would be helpful. And I had plenty of this information. I got invited to speak at a district officers conference at uh, Charleville. And I thought, well, they're paying me to, you know, to fly out there to speak to the local police. I'll, I'll put uh, something together. And I went to the academy, to the unit that I used to work with. And I said, I've got this talk coming up. And I was just wondering if you can help me with some uh, diagrams of the street scene so that I could, you know, show, you know, what took place with these diagrams. And there's an audio of the shooting and I play that. So it all comes together very nicely for people to actually see and, and hear the chilling audio. And they said, oh, you know, yeah, we can help you in six months. Well... I'm in Charleville in about, you know, you know two, two months. And one of the chaps there, and this just shows you a little bit of human kindness, and I did something for him, which I never thought was very major, but he had an accident and he fell and had a brain injury. He went to the Princess Alexandra Hospital. He was there for three months. And I worked with him. I knew him well. and He's a great guy. Every Thursday, I would call in and I'd take him out and we'd go to the Norman Hotel for a steak. He heard this conversation this day when I asked the, about you know, some assistance with these graphics. And he waited until that conversation was over with the uh, person who was in charge of the unit. And he came to the door and he called me back. And he said, oh, hey, Greenie, mate, um, yeah, I heard what was going on. Mate, I'll do it for you in my own time. And I said, what? And he said, mate, I just want to repay you back. That three months in hospital, I hated the hospital food. I looked forward to every Thursday you taking me out and going for a steak. Oh, that's so lovely. Yeah, that that's the hospital that I worked in. It's terrible. It's terrible food, but they do the best that they can, I suppose. And then, so I worked with him on these diagrams. So he lived at Ipswich and we'd go down and, and, and we'd work on a weekend and then I would drive back. And then I was in the car and I was starting to have uh, a sort of dizzy spells and, and then just a feeling of uncomfortableness. And uh, I thought, well, you know, what, what's going on? And what was coming back was these memories that I you know, locked away for a very long time, which was the uh, the trauma of the surgery. And, and, and even to this day, 
uh, I'll go to my hairdresser and at the end of my haircut, she'll use a cutthroat razor and you know, just to do the, you know, the back of my hair. And I'm there like I'm on white knuckle airlines because just that sharp instrument merely tells my brain, oh, it recalls the scalpels and that intrusive surgery. Mm. And so, The trauma, so, yeah. So re-traumatizing you basically. So like, it's like, yeah, that's just a horrific. I just couldn't even imagine what that would be like, you know, and to, to think that at one stage, um, or you didn't want to be going to any of the domestic violence call outs and all that sort of stuff. And you ended up in this kind of situation and it ended up being a massive trauma, you know, um, in the surgery. So um, what, were there any um, standout times during the surgery that, um, I don't know, that helped you to get through that period of time? So I, can, I can tell you, um, when they told me the first reconstruction had failed, I was absolutely shattered mm. and as a uh, coping mechanism of mine I was out running I crossed the bridge I put both hands on the railings I looked over and the thought that merely went through my head I can jump and in the pain it will all be over I could see no light at the end of the tunnel I was really really suffering and I'd been through it once I knew what was to come and the pain medications they gave me they just they could they just couldn't uh, you know cut it because it was just it was just so intrusive and they couldn't make wounds healed and I just have to, to wait. But I'm very fortunate that being a police officer, I'd been to suicides. I knew the effect of people taking their own life on family and friends. It, it, it ends that person's pains, but then it multiplies that, planes, that pain for the people around them. And I just simply said to myself, I cannot do this to mum and dad. So I stood up, I turned and I continued running. And my focus was just to keep going. Yeah. That was, that was the focus. I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. It was so far off. It was going to be um, so, so, so painful. And there was so much going through my head. So it was just that one simple thought of keeping. And I just think... Our brains, I mean, obviously our brains are set to keep us safe and all that sort of thing. And um, and sometimes I just, I have nursed people who have failed and um, and the after effects, you know, the ripple effect, the ripple out effects that it has on people, not just on them, you know, medically, but also throughout the family and, and you know, and the just the pure devastation that one thought just one thought and, you know, and something can just really affect somebody so much if you act on it, not just you, but it'll affect everybody else around you. Yeah, precisely. There's the people saying that, you know, why didn't I pick up on the signs or there were some signs that I was seeing and it was just they seemed so happy and they seemed to have this, this you know, burst of light and activity and, but they were also, you know, they gave things away. And, and that's one, one sign of somebody's made that decision and they're planning to end. And, and uh, anyway, that's why I wish that people would speak out more openly about it um, because it's, it's, I would still say it's a taboo subject that people don't like to talk about. And, and that contributes to the fact of people not getting the message saying, hey, you're actually going to harm all these people in your life who you really care about. Yep. And so please pick up the phone to Lifeline, reach out to a friend for, for help. And, and I did that once. I had a, um, a, a breakup. It was a relationship um, with, a, um, with a girl that I uh, was in love with. And I immediately thought my world's come to an end. I just want to, you know, end it. But uh, a friend of mine who'd been through um, a uh, very uh, serious divorce, I picked up the phone and I said, uh, mate, um, this has happened. I'm really not feeling well. Would you come over? 
and he come over, he stayed the night and it just got me through that one night where I just couldn't see any light at the end of the tunnel. I literally just wanted to you know, go to sleep and not wake up. But one of the smartest things uh, that I um, you know, did and, and, and knew because, you know, we, we never say the same at the same state. You know, there's some days where, you know, we're happy. There's some days we're elated when we, you know, win a race or get that contract. And there's times when we're sad. It might be somebody who passes in our life. It might be a devastating divorce or access to your children. But it's, it's a continual uh, fluctuating uh, mood that we have. And if you do the... Um, smart things you can spend more of that time in the in the happy zone than in the sad zone that's yeah i 100% agree i 100% agree and i don't know why in in australia um when we say mental health it's such a taboo topic but if if we reframe it and say well it's your brain health right looking after your brain you have if you water your brain with goodness and and understand that you, you, you're not your set point is not to be good all the time or happy all the time your your set point you know we're humans and we experience human emotions um and you know i've i even though i don't nurse clinically anymore i went off and got a commerce and behavioral science degree just because i was so burnt out and i learned more about the human mind and and i was thinking you know this stuff gets glossed over in the health prof in the health profession like we don't really because it's separated out with psychology and stuff but if if you can take on that self awareness of understanding your own mind and um and, and becoming resilient as you said like you're you had the thought but you didn't act on it so clearly there was you had some sort of self-awareness around the actions and i put that down to being a police officer and being exposed to suicide if yep. i wasn't a, uh, a police officer and i had a traumatic experience and I had no understanding of suicide or the ripple effect that it had on family and friends, I very well might have t taken that action. Yeah. And I feel blessed to actually have gone to those jobs, seen the effect that it had, and it gave me that blueprint that, well, you know, I'm, I'm not a selfish person. I cannot do that to, to my loved ones. And I'm very grateful to be here um, and alive today because life's pretty good. You know, COVID is tough. I've had to call on a lot of those coping mechanisms. And, uh, but you know, it will come to an end and we'll be able to get back to doing the things that we love and we will love them even, even more. My brother's overseas. I want to go skiing with him. I can't wait to um, do, uh, learn to scuba dive mm. and, now I've spent my uh, 30 years and I've retired and I, I speak professionally, but I also have uh, more time up my sleeve and I love exploring history. So I'd like to go to the Solomons uh, to uh, learn to scuba dive because you have all those wrecks there from uh, the Second World War. It's just so, so fascinating. Yeah. And so right now, that locus of control, so... I, I enjoy my exercise each day. I, I, I cook a lot. I follow the Mediterranean diet. I watch an interesting series. I spend time with friends. And these other things uh, that I, I can't follow, I, I know will come. Yeah. That's what I wanted to, that's what I was going to ask you as well. So um, my big, the big focus that I have on this podcast is understanding that getting well help like both mentally and physically and all it's it's not just a, a a one and done medical model it's it's about yes there's the medication and all the health professionals like psychologists etc available which is amazing but it's also understanding that you've got to move your body and you've got to find things that work for you and surround yourself with supportive and uplifting people who and people that love you i mean not all of us are lucky um to have you know really great support systems but it's about having the self-agency of reaching out, like reach out to somebody who you think like you did with your friend um, to ask him to come over. Like that, that was awesome. That's kind of based off, um, you know, like Alcoholics Anonymous, they have that where, you know, they've always, somebody's always got a sponsor or a, um, a phone number. So if they're struggling, 
they reach out and they ask for help. Um, but yeah, I think you touched on something quite interesting um, about sometimes I feel like when you're a first responder or something, like you, you kind of are, have that awareness of what the outcomes can be. Um, and I think if you don't have a little bit of, uh, what do you call it, grit in your life, you can sometimes get a little bit taken down by just even the smallest things. Would you agree? Yes, I uh, certainly uh, agree with that. Some people live blessed lives and then they'll have one thing that will occur to them and it really will knock them for six. And the last thing I would ever say to them is, is uh, you know, hey, hey, you shouldn't be feeling that bad. It's not that big a deal. It is, is to them. It is big to them. And that, But what I would like to do is encourage them to... Uh, Follow some of those healthy, find some of those healthy strategies that, that, that work and also re realise and saying, well, you know, resilience is a, is a muscle and you're actually building it up. And I remember a friend who was going through his second divorce and he said to me, I've been through it once. I know what to expect. So I actually don't think it's going to be as bad this time as around. It wasn't happy about it and ending a relationship, but he built grit from that first relationship and now he knew what to expect. And uh, so every, everybody's getting, you know, you know, be it a, a car accident, you know, be it a, um, you know, a, a, an issue at work with, uh, with a, a boss who may not have um, be very emotionally intelligent. Mm. Uh, we're all going to have uh, things occur great great and small that eventually eventually you know will some of them you know on a huge scale but yeah you learn those practices and uh and and so the classic example for me is that you know i might have a a, a disagreement with a a telecoms company and i think that this is pretty unfair you're being unreasonable and this ha this happened to me recently and uh and yeah, it upset me. What did I do? I went for a run, burned it off. Yep. Yeah. And I just kept, kept on going back to them and I eventually had a win. <laughs> it's really important to have have healthy coping, coping mechanisms and actually using them. I call it your toolkit. Everybody needs a toolkit. Every human being, I feel like even as children, like I've got a, an eight-year-old and I teach her now, even now, I'm like, you know, life's going to kick you in the balls over. <laughs> like you're literally going to get kicked in the teeth many times. So you need to have a toolkit, you know, and I encourage that with her and with all of my nephews and nieces and stuff. Like I just think it really, I don't know, does does it get taught in schools? I mean, my, my daughter doesn't go to a standard school, so. Not that I am aware of. And there's been a number of people who said, are you doing anything in schools mm. and very nice I mean, but I um, I've worked in a lot a lot of uh, sectors but that's not one yet that I've entered but it may be something down the track that I uh, you know, consider and uh, you bet you're right but like even like with COVID I, I had to come up with some new things to help me and, and, and one of them was that uh the news was so depressing and so horrible. And you, you take what's going on in uh, the Middle East right now between Israel and Palestine. Like, I don't know the ins and outs of that politics, but I see those families who've, you know, lost loved ones and the horror and, you know, just the empathy. It's like, oh my God, this is just you know, shocking. So that's heavy. Then at the end of the night, I'll probably watch something, you know, uh, like um, Godfather of Harlem, which is actually based on a, a true character who was a, a black gangster in, in Harlem. But that's all really heavy. And I'm going to bed with all these heavy thoughts, having watched all this news about COVID and what's going on in India and the bombings in Israel and this, you know, this crime figure who made his way to the top murdering people. And so well, I want to wind down. So I have, a, you know, I have a shower before I go to bed and what do I, I read a little bit. And but the last thing I do before is I put on an episode of South Park. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Light, light, easy, funny, and puts me in that good mood, and 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 it helps me get to sleep. 
it's I'm a big believer in, in um, be careful about what you watch and what you what you allow your brain to ingest because it is your brain's very suggestive you know um, I don't watch the news on purpose I stopped watching it after I left nursing just because I was just so sick of looking at all the darkness and never seeing any good and I remember I used to my um, yeah, I remember my daughter's father used to watch the news all the time and I would come home from a shift and I'd be like, turn it off, I can't watch it. And um, and he just wouldn't get it. He's like, don't you want to know what's going on? I said, all I want to do is stay in my own lane. I, I know how empathic I am and I can't handle this, watching this. I know what's going on in the world and can I change it? No, but if I can change myself, then I, it will then spread outwards. Do you know what I mean? Um, change your mindset just don't I can't I literally I can't watch the news just because I just want to help everybody and go this has got to stop you know like stop it Um, but yeah you're right I think it's really healthy to watch an episode of South Park or or change it up just to because your brain is very suggestible yeah and uh, like I'm uh, a big advocate of gun control and Mm. I've a lot of time in America and uh, my heart just bleeds like the number of you know mass shootings that are taking place over there is just horrific and one of the things I'm quite passionate about is is not having firearms in the house yeah you know, people have you know that, that they have uh, rights you know, to have firearms and they're sporting shooters etc but the one thing I, I know is that people can have that sudden snap and think, I want to end it now. And it's uh, so easy with a firearm to go and do that. If you don't have access to that firearm, probably going to have to think about it a little bit more and make some plans to go somewhere or to do something. And just that little bit of extra time that they can realise, like, hold on, do I really want to do this? Mm. Because I remember there's been studies about people who uh, jumped from, you know, uh, structures and lived and one of the the people who had lived they said as they were falling they thought oh a a significant percentage had this thought of no i don't want to die yeah just want the pain to stop yeah yeah and so i'm a very big one for like for putting up the uh the barriers like over the gateway bridge just to make it you know more difficult for you know people to um you know can't climb uh that uh that structure so the more we can we can do to um, not give these easy um, accesses, yeah, uh, gives those people time. And I, I know in America, uh, some of the you know uh, white males are very highly disproportionately uh, represented in suicide, and the number one means is firearms because they're just yeah, right. so. Abundant. Do you also think? Because I know that a lot of uh, it's even as a nurse like I remember you know people post attempt or whatever and it was failed etc and the one common thing was I just wanted the pain to stop I just wanted the pain to the mental pain to stop do you believe or do you think that there needs to be a massive shift well I think it does a massive shift in, in helping people to be aware that we are all humans who experience human emotions and and being given the tools as kids um, to to deal with emotional pain. Oh, I, I think the earlier the start, uh, absolute uh, better to let them know, hey, you, you're not always going to be happy. The world's not always going to be perfect. You're going to get knocked down. What counts is getting you know back up and uh, have some things in, in in your toolkit to uh, to help you. So if you can plant those uh, those thoughts and those heads from a very early age. That is, um, yeah, extremely uh, uh, healthy. But uh, I think at at, at, any, at any age that when people strike some some difficulties, and I remember recently I was talking to a colleague, and there'd been a, a a suicide of somebody who was very high profile in a profession, and my mate said to me, he said, unfortunately, some of the people that I work with, their identity is so close or so related to their job, once that was taken away from, from them, they couldn't see anything else in life. Mm-hmm. And 
and there, and there is, you know, because we all have, you know, careers we, that, and they will come to an end. You have relationships and, and, and they will come to an end. But one door closes and, and another one opens. And I just think if you can, if you can have that in the back of your mind, that uh, some of the people, classically Steve Jobs, being fired from Apple, he turned around and said, actually, that was one of the best things that ever happened to him. Yep. 100% because it's 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 realizing that it's giving them yeah this is I'm a big believer in I've done heaps of research into this but yeah the first 10 years of your life as a child will set you up as how how resilient you you do or you do not become as an adult and um and I just think you know you, kids need to be definitely taught how to build their toolbox young and be, and understand that it's okay to to have to feel angry because I do feel like like I remember my, when my daughter was at school when she was in the first couple of years and she just just didn't she didn't want to be there if she you know she just wasn't emotionally or mentally ready to be there I don't think but um you know kids being allowed to be kids and to to, to feel anger and to and to know that they don't have to shove that down do you know what I mean because of the pain of being disconnected from mummy or whatever yeah, and, and one of the you know, classics with, you know, PTSD is anger. And I have had a lot of anger uh, and a lot, large amount of it was, you know, I had a right to be angry but by uh, some of the things that, that, that took place. And uh, so one of the first operations I had, uh, I awoke from it and it was a, a bone graft from my lower jaw up, up to here and I was in extreme pain and the uh, the first person who come to mind was that gunman and I was just so angry with him so there was you know one stage there uh, another stage was when the psychiatrist was asking for access to photographs of the incident to, to help try and desensitize me to what taken place and to talk about it and there was a um, impasse put in place by a, uh, a very um, senior member of the police who a, a police psychologist went along to speak to and explain you know, why this would be helpful. He just couldn't get it. And he had his, uh, uh, his opinion. And the police psychologist turned to me and said, uh, this person, he... Basically, I would describe his opinion as you should just have a beer and forget about it. And <sighs> that is a very what? inherent Australian old school toxic way of dealing with things. It doesn't bloody hell. I mean, yes, have a drink if you want to, but I mean, don't keep it going as a coping mechanism. Exactly. And the psychiatrist wrote to this individual, he released six photographs that showed barely you know, anything of the actual incident. A uh, couple of them were um, from the helicopter, a couple from the scene. He wrote back requesting more, explaining how this would be beneficial uh, in, in my treatment to help managing all these things that were, uh, were, were uh, bothering me, you know, anxiety, depression, hyperarousal, sexual dysfunction. It, I, was, I was, you know, a real mess. Here's a professional trying to help me. And, and here's this person, he just ignored the letter. He ignored it. And I was extremely angry and I didn't lash out. I know that's what, you know, unfortunately a lot of people are doing. And in my police role, I've seen that, that, that people, they lash out and they, and they create a huge problem for themselves, for the people in their lives and for, you know, for society, where if you can find a healthier way to deal with something like that. And for me, it might not be the same for anybody, but go for a run and then think about a positive way that you know you can go forward. And guess what? You know, you can be unlucky, but you can also be lucky. That's right. 100 And I'll tell you where that luck came from. I was at the uh, Breakfast Creek Hotel, and uh, I believe it was on um, an anniversary of the shooting. So people involved got together. And I just sat there at the bar and I turned to my mate, who's a uh, senior constable, and I told him about this issue, you know, not getting access to photographs. And I did say to him, oh, soon as you become an assistant commissioner, you become a psychiatrist. <laughs> and, and 
And he turned out to be in scenes of crime. And, and he, he said to me, Greeny, I've got the entire roll of those photographs at uh, my, my, my station of, of the crime scene. And I said, mate, I'm willing to help you. And he printed them all out, gave them to me. And I never opened them because I knew I needed professional help. I, and so I took this package to the psychiatrist and then we worked through them. So uh, that was just a bit of expressing what was going on in my life, a little bit of that anger. And then yeah. somebody had the ability to help me. Well, that's great. So um, tell us a little bit about, so obviously you had psychology and um, your doctors and all, and you, you chose running. Was there anything else that you chose along your healing journey, um, you know, like self-care kind of practices or just things that helped you along the way? One of the big ones was always having something to look forward to. And so travel was a big part of my life. And because I was going through operations, I started a second degree, a master's degree in finance. I wasn't having much of a life here. And so what I would do is that I would have planned a really awesome trip overseas. And that would be normally seeing my, stopping in Asia, going visiting Angkor Wat and being, enjoying those temples and, you know, just the different foods, fly on to England, see my brother and, and go uh, ski some of the most exotic places uh, in, in Europe. So that was really decompression for me over this long period because I was had you know, so many years of operations and that master's degree was five years of part-time studying. I wasn't having much of a life. Yeah. And so that was one was having things to... Uh, look forward to yeah and some and that, that and that that was like you know hey that's you know six months away a classic one was on the weekend i would uh, have time to myself and i would just uh pick a country in the world it might be spain and i would make myself a um you know a, a three-course you know spanish meal and just treat myself to that and watch something that i was really interesting often a, a history documentary that's a really healthy way of um of looking at it i think that's that's bloody awesome if only more people could do that <laughs> like just learn to plan like it's okay to plan but i think it's also if you get stuck in the that the plan has to be straightforward that's where you can come undone and understanding that it doesn't have to be straightforward like right i'm going to spain in six months <laughs> it's like well i can't get there for another year or two so i'm gonna make a like three, I would never have imagined doing that. You've just given me an idea. <laughs> no, and, and, and look, each each day, like right now, I really enjoy my coffee. So I look forward to that each morning. I grind my own beans and have, have the percolator. And uh, again, I'm really, you know, I like to look after my health. So uh, I, I follow the Mediterranean diet. And, and also I heard, particularly at this point of time, I was another professional speaker and they were actually addressing a room of professional speakers and talked about some of the um, issues that they were having and, and in, in their family and what it was that, well, normally the kids would be at school, the husband would be away working and, you know, she'd be working on a business and then she'd be doing some speaking or some coaching and mentoring. And uh, they ended up all being at, being at home and, uh, you know, in each other's pockets um, and a lot of activities sort of taken away. And she then started to, you know, have a, uh, you know, couple of couple of you know, glasses of wine each night, and that just sort of crept up a little bit. And then she made a rule, and she said, "Right, I'm only going to touch alcohol three times a week." And funnily enough, that's exactly um, what I'd already done. And that, and for me, it's just twice a week that yeah. I, I will enjoy a, a, a beverage, be it, um, you know, a barbecue at a friend's place. Or I might decide to, you know, um, if I've got nothing on, I'll cook myself a nice barbecue, put a movie on and enjoy a steak and a, a couple of red wines. <laughs> That's but good. I think I think more people should really, yeah, I mean, the, the coulda, shoulda, wouldas, I suppose, but unless you've actually had the the time and the space to, to understand who you are as a person, because I think as you touched on the identity thing, um, I 
I spoke to a retiree. She's, you know, 60s and um, she identified herself as a worker and a mother and then she retired and her kids are all out of, um, you know, empty nesting or whatever. And then she was like, Christy, I don't even know who the fuck I am anymore. <laughs> She's like, oh, it's like my whole identity has just been taken away from me. I'm like, well, this is a beautiful time for you to learn what makes you happy, you know, And because she was getting depressed and she was just sad. And I said, well, okay, so go out and learn who you are. What do you like? What do you want to do? Where do you want to go? Plan, make a plan. Oh, but I'm like, come on! But it's true. It's you've got to have you've got to have the want and the desire. I think. Yeah, and uh, that, uh, and and that and that little bit of drive and mm. uh, to 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 do it because you know what, it's it's not going to be easy. But I, I had a, a as a friend just recently. He's had a breakup. He's uh, you know, he's studying. He's changing careers. He says I'm having trouble getting out of out of bed. And so uh, I said, oh, no, I, I, I've experienced that too. And I said, look, one thing that really helped me was just having, uh, on the days really depressed, was a simple list. And the first thing is it started with making my bed, yep. uh, making coffee, uh, answering emails. And just by doing that, at the end of it, I felt that I'd achieved something. Hmm. Uh, having it written down was really powerful because, you know, I can tell you from experience, Lying in bed for hours and hours all day will get you nowhere. And uh, but movement, getting the human body movement, and especially um, I encouraged him to get back into to his exercise because uh, our our physical health is so much linked to our mental health. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I um, I went through a divorce last year as well, and and me thankfully, and I was at university as well and finishing up and thankfully I had the same agency I like start writing lists and just tick them off just tick them off and tick them off and then I went and I joined um this strength training gym and it's just and you know making new friendships and new communities and through doing that the exercise and I work for a cardiac research company so they screw with everything you know about exercise and you know all that sort of stuff and and it's true Move your body because if you're moving your body, you're moving that energy out and it's being expended and you're also recreating new energy for your brain, like serotonin and all that good stuff. I'm a massive believer in, yeah, having a list, even if it's, as you said, have a coffee, call a friend, call Lifeline, call somebody, but just keep going. Don't stop. I think that's the thing to getting out of those dark times is, yeah, have a list. And even here right now is I make a point of, of every day of, of getting out the house and that there will not be a day that I'll be in my apartment a hundred times. And so I might have, you know, grocery shopping to do. Then I might need to go get some scripts filled up. Hmm. Um, and I'll do them on separate days just to get out and about in, in, the, um, in the community. Um, plus um, time permitting is I'll drive to my dad's and we'll, you know, we will watch the evening news. So, so um, each to so their own. Spending, yeah, that is, that is, we spend time with him. But coming back to that list, and people can display that all, but I can remember there was so much, you know, of fog in my memory and my thought processes. It would be very difficult to just to think, well, what's coming next and what should I do? And, uh, and so that's where that really helped. And as the day progressed, often I'll switch things around. You know, I, I'm, I'm tired. I, I've done enough. You know what? I want to go for a run now. The sun's out and it's nice and warm and that will revigorate me. And that next thing I planned on doing, picking up the phone to speak to that telecoms company about the issue I have, that can go on tomorrow's list. So I'm, I'm yep. a big one for being flexible and... Uh, and um, looking after your physical and mental health. And one of them, I do my best work up to midday. After midday, I, I try to do things that are, are less um, mentally demanding. Yeah. And so I do housework. You know, I'll chop up and prepare vegetables. In the morning is when I want to concentrate on my speaking work and when I, you know, you know author anything uh, and, uh, you know, pick up the phone for some difficult conversations 
you know, uh, with that telecoms uh, company when, when I'm firing at my, at my best. Mm. Yeah. I think it's knowing uh, your, yourself and when you are best, when you do work best, you work best in the morning or in the afternoons and being able to have that ability to do that is, is quite, is quite lucky. I mean, not everybody has you know, that flexibility. Yeah. Yeah. And I get it. Um, okay, so is there any advice that you would offer to listeners? I mean, you kind of have already given the advice, which is the list, but is there any other advice that you would give to listeners that um, are going through, whether it be a small struggle or a big struggle? Because we all have yeah, there was um, – so I've, I've talked about a lot of, um, you know, physical activities and, and mm. doing, but I'd like to share with you um, what was a big – mental um, pivot for me that really helped me go forward in life. So I had this long journey of, you know, of, of operations and returning uh, to, you know, to work and having some struggles, you know, uh, at work with, uh, with, with people who just, you know, had made insensitive comments, you know, you know, aren't you over that yet? Oh, it's just a few dental procedures. Or oh, that night, um, it wasn't that big a deal, and you shouldn't have been there anyway. Oh, I, what the? <laughs> trust, mm, okay, yeah, right. So those things really sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, cut deep. So I had this really long journey, and I've always been a really fairly happy, optimistic person, and but and. Uh, I was really enjoying life and, until I ended up um, getting shot. I was looking to get into the housing market. I'd just come back from uh, um, um, uh, 12 months unpaid leave where I traveled the world. And I uh, spent six months actually traveling, six months bartending around Europe. And I was looking forward to this new, new stage in my life. The shooting occurred. And then I was always wanting to get back to be the old Daryl Green and something would happen. And this has happened a few times because I, I run on the road, I run on the bitumen and I running along, a, a car goes by, somebody's left a pizza box on the road and the car hits it, makes a loud bang and I jump out of my skin. I, my, my fists are literally up. I'm ready to go. This is hyper arousal. One of the most, you know, the psychiatrist said to me that of, PTSD, the most um, iconic symptom is that hyperarousal. Still mm. affects me today. And then I turn and I get angry at myself. How would the old Daryl react? I want to be the old Daryl, you know, where that would, wouldn't bother me. I just turn and look curiously. Oh, what's that? Mm. And uh, 10 years on from the, sh from, from the shooting, I, it took seven years to reconstruct my mouth. Ten years later, I finally won a battle for criminal compensation. <laughs> yeah. And I, apparently I was, wasn't a victim of, of a crime, according to the legislation. Anyhow. All right. I was able to park. I was I, I achieved success there. And, and, I, and I think that was a very important moment because I felt most of my big struggles were over. And then I had the realization what had happened to me was a huge change in my change in my life. It affects every aspect of my life. It's going to affect um, those aspects of my uh, life, you know, going forward. And there's not all bad there. You know, there is post-traumatic growth. And I can tell you, look, I get a lot more joy out of simple things than I ever did before, like a su sunset. But what it was, stop looking back and trying to be the old Daryl Green and accepting this is the new Daryl Green, the shooting is a big part of my life. And I just stopped getting angry with myself. And I wake it, I did, I woke at four o'clock in the morning uh, to, today for no particular reason. I, you know, I got off about, you know, 11.30 last night and it's unhealthy, you know, don't you have those short periods. So I went up, I went to the, uh, the bathroom, I um, uh, got a drink of water, I put some music on and I took some sleeping medication. And I got back off the sleep and I'm very, you know, uh, rested and ready to, you know, to, to tackle the day. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I know that's a result of the, you know, the, the shooting things playing on my mind. Yeah. And, 
but yeah, yeah. but it's, but you you've got your you've got your your all of your toolkits you got your little toolkit together and you know how to make it all um, turn around and things like that. Um, do you have a particular? I mean, obviously, healing modality is what I say, but um, it sounds like running is like your healing modality. I. What do you? Running plays an incredible uh, um, uh, part. And the funny thing is I'm actually not a great runner. I'm actually a sprinter. When I was at high school, I did sprinting. So long distance running, you know, people will, you know, run the shoes off me. But I like to run by myself because this is time just for me. And, that, and that's where I do my thinking. And I listen to audio books. And I listen to true stories that uh, help inspire me about other people's, you know, uh, you know journeys in life. So, so, yeah, exercise is huge. And one of the things I do is swimming in the pool, resistance band tra training. Can't do it right now, uh, you know, winter. But as a healing uh, modality, when I've had a really uh, crap day and some of the things might go wrong for my dad because I have to manage all his affair and my uncle's affairs, who's in, in a home, and I've spent some time on, on the, on the telephone, hours on, on the phone, and uh, we're both down. And, uh, and turn around and practice gratitude. Let's name five things that we're grateful for. Yep. I'm a massive believer in, um, in, in practicing gratitude. In fact, my daughter, she, um, she drew me a picture for Mother's Day. And it was this rainbow heart. And then in it, she wrote Happy Motter's Day, which is like German. Motter is German because um, she learns German. And, um, and she said, I'm grateful for the roof over my head and blah, blah, blah. And she just did this list of, and that's all it was. And I was like, wow, it's rubbing off on her too. So I'm a massive believer in gratitude. Yeah, because when you do start to feel a bit bleh, stop, turn it around and go, well, what, what have I actually got here? You know, like could be worse. Yes. I mean, far worse far far worse yeah yeah it's yeah huge um so do you have a favorite inspirational quote having said that i i, I do and uh i think it really is has encompassed my journey in life and, and still to this day and that but my father and i have actually repeated the core of this quote to ourselves many a time when things just seem to be taking so long and what it is is uh Patience is waiting, not passively waiting. That is laziness. But to keep going when the going is hard and slow, that is patience. The two most powerful warriors are patience and time. Leo Tolstoy. That's awesome. I love that. That's so true. Thank patience. You. Just, yep, 100%. I don't know what else to add to that, but I agree. <laughs> And, and, and how that sort of affected me is like these operations, like I want to get my reconstruction over and done with. And it's like, you've got to wait three months for the next procedure. And I've got a plate back in my mouth. I can't eat solid foods. I'm sucking my food through a straw. And mm. I'm just like, oh. And, I, and that was 2000, probably the most horrific surgery took place in, uh, in late 2003 when they cut out a chunk of bone. Yeah. Uh, this is a titanium, rotated it around then transplant another piece of bone from my jaw to fit between it to get these implants um, vertically. Then I had a plate in my mouth once again. And then for the next three months, which included um, Christmas, New Year's Eve, and my birthday, I could not eat solid food. Mm. I was absolutely miserable. But that was, you know, you know, I had to be patient, you know, to take care of my dental hygiene, take care of my mental health and, and, and the time. And, and I have a, an amazing reconstruction uh, to this day, but I still have to take very special care with my dental hygiene because, as the surgeon said, the replacement is never as good as the original. So I yeah. used to do karate. No, can't do that. Can't play football. If I get struck there... Uh, I could be have to go back under the knife, and I don't want to do that. No, it just means you have to readjust your mode, your uh, your modes of, yeah. But you know, at least, yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. Okay. What piece of advice would you give to your younger self? Is there any sort of advice that you would give to either your eighteen year old self or your younger self? I, I've, I've, I've 
thought about this and this would be advice of, you know, hopefully one day I meet somebody and they have some children, which I'll give them. And that advice is that it doesn't matter if you're a carpenter or a, or a surgeon, gain valuable skills and that, and so that if you're working for an organization and you know, it, you don't agree with its, you know, with its values or its directions, or it turns out to be a toxic workplace and that, that you can move. Yes, I 100% agree with that. I, yeah, if you, if you, and also I think, again, have the tools, have the emotional resilience to, to deal with it while you're changing and have patience and, and yeah, understand that you have a choice. You can either stay or you can leave. It can be difficult though, because some occupations don't have transferable skills. Yeah. And I, 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 um, well, somebody who um, treats me for uh, my mouth, I have um, quarterly checkups on, on my mouth and this recon reconstruction. And she said, oh, my son's just gone into the police. And uh, so I asked her how that was going. And I said, again, I just gave her that piece of advice. And I said, I would just encourage him to get skills that are transferable out. So that could be, a mem you know, getting your detectives appointment so you can be an investigator for another organisation. Uh, the water police. Water police uh, is difficult to get into. It's highly desirable. Uh, but those, um, you know, that, that, those tickets and qualifications can use all over the world. Yep. You know, it, it could be becoming a, you know, a diver, could be a member, you know, of the tactical team, you know, that you can employ. But yeah, mm. that's... Keep learning, I think. Mm. Keep learning, don't give up and, yeah, transferable skills because you never know. You might get down the track and go, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. This is just too mentally taxing and I'm over it. <laughs> a bit like me. Yeah. <laughs> um, favourite, so the last two questions are favourite food and favourite music. Do you listen to music or is there anything specifically that you love to listen to that makes you feel happy, food that makes you feel happy? Because it's it's okay to have the balance, you know, of, of health and I love food and uh, funnily enough I thought about being a chef when I uh, before I left school but I thought oh, I didn't want my hobby to become uh, you know my burden and what I know about that industry now I'm, I'm glad I never went down that mm. path so I actually like a, a variety of food there's pretty much nothing that I, I, I don't eat I love trying uh, new food so uh, when I first went to the Philippines, I tried their traditional food, the balot, which was a partially fertilised uh, uh, duck or chicken egg. Oof. And, uh, my <laughs> friend, he wouldn't come, come, come near it. Uh, and so a classic for me is what I really miss when I'm travelling is a, is a great steak. Yeah, right. I really miss a... Uh, um, a, a great yeah so I'd have steak about once a week but I follow that diet so I'm eating you know lots of green lots of vegetables and it's like you know, cauliflower and broccoli in the microwave it's simple it doesn't have to be um, yeah so okay. uh, yeah. and healthy desserts I, I like desserts as much as anybody else Greek yogurt cinnamon you know uh, honey and almonds really yeah. healthy and uh, tasty and, and simple mm. yeah. Uh, as for music, yep. uh, I'll have a barbecue at a friend's place, and we'll put YouTube on, and we'll uh, we will uh, put different songs on. And uh, I've got one that relates to a little bit of history, and so uh, I'll, I'll tell you the song and a little bit of the rationale behind it. Uh, it is uh, "Ride of the Valkyries." And it's a scene from Apocalypse Now uh, as they, uh, the helicopters are descending in to uh, take that local village so, so they could go surfing. So it's quite uplifting and, and, and inspiring music. But I uh, have a very interested in the Vietnam War and I'm very grateful because what happened was for the history of PTSD, it wasn't recognised formally and till 1980 by the American Psychiatrist Association. And that was from all the veterans of Vietnam, what they'd suffered and what they were coming back as, it was, that was when it was determined as a specific, specific mental illness. And I'm very grateful that 
what they went through was finally recognised and they could actually, you know, um, give a diagnosis, which is actually has some legal um, foundation. Um, mm. And so when it comes to, you know, um, support, assistance, um, compensation, uh, that... Um, that that had been through because mm. I saw one psychiatrist speak and he said they'd had these wars they had the American Civil Wars and that was called Soldier's Heart back then then you'd have the First World War and they called it shell shock and this went on they had the uh, um, Second World War I think it was uh, combat fatigue but then they'd forget about it and it and it dropped dropped away and and it took the Vietnam War and what those poor American soldiers came back. And let's not forget the Vietnamese who were, how many of them were, you know, were killed and suffered, the, the mental health issues that they um, you know, suffered. So, um, yeah. so that's a song I like, it's uplifting and it's inspiring. And it's a little bit of gratitude for what those people went through. And they spoke out to doctors who was finally able to recognize PTSD as a real condition and a tradition, a, a condition that can be treated. Yeah, yeah, it, and it would have been hard for them to speak back then because you know it's it's only now just starting to now like in two thousand and twenty one, <laughs> like it's just insane that it's taken this long for people to finally understand that you know mental health. I don't. It's your brain. Look after your brain. Your brain gets traumatized and then look after it. At the end of the day, you know, like. You, you, it's the whole connection of yeah I've, the fact that it took until 1980 wow wow hmm. anyway um so yeah right okay well thank you so much for um coming on i know it's a bit of a heavy topic to talk about but it's a necessary topic to talk about and you know sticking your head in the sand is not gonna make it change and um i think you're very brave for sharing your story and um speaking and a lifeline ambassador now so like at least now from your pain you get to share your story and help other people understand that it's you know it's not weak to speak that's <laughs> oh, very rewarding and i i know that you know that that you know i don't consider myself as uh weak and and again like there's just so many stories um it did occur to me that it took a long time for me to go back to work um, because of all the operations and a friend said to me he'd, he'd been involved in another incident and he said oh I, all that time you took off before you come back I thought you were weak well now I'm having my own problems mm. but to his credit he owned up and sort of said I'm having my own problems it's just part of being being human yeah it is that's right we all go through these struggles the more we talk about it openly and honestly, um, the less it becomes taboo and, and more people will start to get help, I think, and we'll start to get, yeah. So thank you very, very much for coming on. I really appreciate you being a part of the podcast project in between crew. I've really enjoyed um, talking to you. It's been an absolute pleasure, uh, Kirsty. I'd like to you, uh, encourage you to keep on doing what you're doing with this interviewing with all these people uh, around the world and their experiences because I'm still putting tools in my tool bucket and uh, I'm learning each day. So, um, yep. yeah, thank you. Thank you very much.